0: This morning, we're in one of those, I suppose, very unique chapters of the Bible. And although the event here is recorded in Mark and Luke, it's probably recorded a little more in detail in Matthew. And that is this, this most unique never having occurred before and never since event. And that's the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. And so you remember before I read the scriptures, verses 1 through 13 in chapter 17, remember the background. In chapter 16, Jesus has, and the disciples have moved out of the area of the nation of Israel, that geographic area, out into the Gentile area in Caesarea Philippi. And it is a pivotal, pivotal or turning point, and Andy brought this out, where the emphasis in Jesus' ministry and teaching shifts from the crowds. It doesn't mean he's not going to teach the crowds anymore, but the emphasis shifts from ministering to others out there and teaching them and dealing with their issues to more of an introspection or a work among the brethren where the instruction of the 12 specifically and ministry to these 12 is going to be accentuated more than the ministry outside to other people. And in that context, you remember Jesus, as he begins this shift, he says to them, who am I? Who am I? Who do people say that I am? And you remember the names and the terms and the, rather, the, uh, the, the answers. And then he said, but who am I to you? Uh, that's great that you say this person says that and that person says that, but who am I to you? Extremely, extremely important question all of us to ask. Who is Jesus to me personally, on a daily basis, regularly, when the sun's shining, when the storms are coming? Who is Jesus? The most significant question I think we can say, ask, who is Jesus to me? Not who Jesus needs to be to you. That's a secondary question. And so you remember the answer of the Apostle Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus approbates that and affirms it by saying, Peter, you're blessed because you've been revealed. This revelation has been made um, real to you. you, The Father has revealed this to you, not flesh and blood. And then you remember Jesus talks about taking up the cross, etc., And so now we head into chapter 17, and as we get into chapter 17, what is important for us not to do is to disassociate chapter 16 from 17, because what Matthew does here, he takes the confession of the apostle Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, he takes that confession, and he shows in chapter 17 what that confession means, he allows this experience to expose or to reveal the vitality and the enormity and the majesty of that testimony that Peter gave. So chapter 17, especially, of course, the first 13 verses, need to be seen within the context of the confession of, or the testimony of the Apostle Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And having done, said that, then a number of days later, God is going to show Peter and the other two Apostles, John and James, what that confession really is to God, what it really is to him, and therefore what it should be in a larger context to them. Fathers, we enter this great, great event Father, as everything we do and say and understand about your word, pour your grace, pour out your revelation, pour out your wisdom, pour out discernment, pour out understanding and knowledge. Father, pour out ability to speak, ability to hear and to learn and to receive. Father, all that at the end of this time together, we may walk in a greater way, As those who also are being transfigured, transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read the transfiguration of Jesus. And I only want to read, first of all, the first five verses. Chapter 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we were here. If you wish, I will make you three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So what is Matthew's purpose in recording this event? Well, first of all, I've already given you the context which I wanted to do before I read it. The transfiguration. Uh, there is a strong possibility that Matthew records this event against the background of an Old Testament event. Now remember, Matthew's purpose by the Holy Spirit's will is to show us that Jesus is the one who from the very beginning, especially as indicated in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, that Jesus is the one whom God will send to redeem his fallen people. As a result of Adam's sin in Genesis 3, six, And so moving forward in the Old Testament. We said this many times. Over the years and through the years. The revelation of one who is coming. Begins to be built bit by bit. Precept upon precept. Event upon event. And when we get to Exodus. Especially. We begin to see. That God raises up a Messiah, an anointed one. Remember, the word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word to be anointed. It is the Greek word Christos, Christ, Messiah, a deliverer. One who will take his people out of bondage and bring them into the presence of God and will lead them and minister the purposes and the life of God to his people through his, the Messiah, through his power through his prerogatives and so Moses is a figure of that a type of that a picture of the one who is to come and so when we see the experiences of Moses in being raised up to lead the people to deliver them to take them to Sinai to administer the law and to do all the work that Moses is doing all these years to take them to the promised land we see a picture of Jesus. And so Matthew has this in his mind. And as he proves that Jesus is the fulfillment of whom Moses pictured, he gives this event, he records this event of the transfiguration, remembering the events in Exodus. And so let's look at this and just see the the similarities and the tie-in together. And so in Exodus 24, 15 to 17, and there's a lot more, but just this specific piece of scripture. Here's what Exodus 24, 15 to 17 says. And you remember, this is after the giving of the law and Moses goes back up into the mountain having been called by God. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, After six days, on the seventh day, God called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Well, let's compare the event in the first several verses of chapter 17 to the event in these verses in Exodus 24. First of all, Matthew 17, verse 1. How does it begin? After six days. After six days. What happened? Jesus went up on the mountain after six days. Whereas in Exodus 24 verse 16, Moses waited on the mountain for six days. And on the seventh, Yahweh, or the Lord, called to Moses. So when it says after six days, Jesus and these three disciples went up on the mountain, what day is that? after six days what day is this (laughs) seventh day okay great 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 you're with me i knew you could do it after six days what day is it you see let's make sure when we read our bibles we're reading it in a way that is capturing the subtleties of the holy spirit so after six days What day are we talking about, Billy? The seventh day. So Jesus is on the mountain with the disciples on the same day that Moses is now receiving from God on the seventh day. Do we see the connection there? Now, what is and I'm not going to do this. I was going to do the whole class on just the word seventh day. And I might do that a little later on, but I felt the Lord say, don't do it. What is significant about the seventh day? It's called what? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. And I think there is an enormous teaching here and understanding that we, as the people of God, must understand that differentiates the significance of the Sabbath before the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and the significance of the Sabbath after the resurrection and how to view the Sabbath today after the resurrection in view of the very strong commands of God, keep my Sabbath, and this is a forever command. And so some teach that means on Saturday we must have church, and on Saturday you don't do any work, etc. They're called Sabbatarians, those who keep the Sabbath as if they were still Jewish. And so we need to understand that, not only from that kind of a perspective, but understand the whole issue of what does God mean by don't doing any work on that day, Philip? And so does that mean that on Sunday now or whatever, we're not supposed to work? And so we need, I think, to have a better apprehension of that. And so I think that we're going to go ahead and do this. I just need to kind of get a release on when to do it. So you'll just be praying with me, I'm sure, to ask the Holy Spirit to make sure I hear that and I hear his timing on that. Number two, verse two. Jesus was transfigured before them. Before whom? Peter, James, and John. Peter was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Well, again, this transfiguration echoes. By the way, the word transfiguration, it comes from the word metamorphosis. It means to be changed in form. The form of Jesus is changed. How many of you remember caterpillars to butterflies? You remember the example of metamorphosis? The caterpillar cocoon and all that. And after a while, what happens? Out of the cocoon comes a butterfly. How many of you remember that from high school biology? Metamorphosis. Well, the word is the Greek word metamorpho. And it means form. A form. And so this is a change of form. A transforming. Therefore, transfiguration. Jesus' transfiguration, once again, echoes the experience of Moses in several places, but just wanted to show you one in particular, Exodus 34, 29. Remember, what Matthew is doing is showing that Jesus is the one who fulfills the ministry of Moses among Uh, Several, so Jesus, if you would, is the second Moses. Jesus, if you would, is the one who fulfills the picture of deliverance as Israel exit was exiled in exile and was delivered out of exile into the promised land in the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who will deliver His people out of exile. We were in the house and bondage of Satan into the promised land into God's presence forever. So you see, He is the one who fulfills that picture of the Old Testament. So once. Again, what we see in the transfiguration is another glimpse of something about the person ministry of Moses being fulfilled in the person ministry of Jesus. So Exodus thirty four twenty nine, Moses' face shone. What does that mean? Bright, a light, because he had been walking with God. All, remember that. So Jesus' face what shines? Now, what's the difference? Moses' shining face was a shining of his skin as a result of being in the presence of God, and it is, was a reflection externally of what God or what, who God is and what he had been doing. It is a reflection of that externally. But what's the difference in Jesus' face shining? He is shining within himself, and the shining comes out from his inner person and is being expressed externally. And so you see Moses' light, the light in Moses' face is not in, uh, in intrinsic to Moses. It's not part of who he is. It is a given light. But Jesus' face shines because he is light. So there you see, again, the picture of the temporary or the partial and the picture of the fulfillment. Also, Jesus was transfigured before the disciples. Echoes 2417 of Exodus, when Moses saw the appearance of the glory of the Lord. The word transfigure, again, is a word metamorpho, which means to change form. So in being transfigured, Jesus, human outward person, his person, the man, his humanity, was changed to reflect his inward divine reality. And so in the transfiguration, what is happening here? We see a man, an ordinary guy, just another man <clears throat> who speaks words that, hmm, those are unique words, Stephen. I've never heard people somebody speak like that before. This man is a great teacher. <gasps> We just see a man, Liz, who walks on water. Unusual man, really. We see a man who heals blind eyes. We see a man who does all this miraculous stuff, but we're still seeing a man. But you see, Peter has received the revelation. This is not just a man. This is the only unique man And the father tells Peter, this man is the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the one who has been promised from the very beginning about whom the entire Old Testament is the subject. And then we come to the mountain of transfiguration and for the very first time, Jesus' inner divine nature. Now, we thought, we know Jesus is unique, and, you know, maybe he's divine, maybe, you know, what does that mean, and how does it look, you know, we're not sure, you know, all those kinds of things, Do you remember that? Well, he is, but he isn't, but I wonder if he is, and for the first time, God reveals to his people, these three men representing, at least, Israel, that this is indeed the Son. By the transformation, he's revealing the inner divine nature of this man called Jesus. And that's what we're getting at the Mount of Transfiguration. Verse 5: A bright cloud overshadowed them. Verse 5: A bright cloud. Again in Exodus 24:15. The cloud covered the mountain. So you see the, if you would, the duplication, if you would, of the similarities between the Exodus 24 event and the transfiguration event in chapter 17 of Matthew. In verse 5 again, God spoke from the cloud. This is my beloved son. God is speaking. In Exodus 25, 1, the Lord spoke to Moses. And so we we see these similarities. So let's take a few moments and let's talk a little bit about the divine significance of the transfiguration. I've already thrown some out because I kind of get ahead of myself, don't I? So what is the Holy Spirit teaching us in Jesus' transfiguration? What do we learn? It's important when we read our Bibles again, especially when it comes to this kind of event... What is God saying to us about himself in the person of Christ? What is God saying about himself in the person of this man, Jesus? In the transfiguration, God was giving the disciples a visible glimpse of the significance and the truth of, of Peter's confession in 1616. Jesus, Peter had made the confession. What does it say again? I, I, I just remember King James, so forgive me if you're not a thou and thee the person. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the confession in 1616. Now on the Mount of Transfiguration, God shows them a little bit about the significance and the truth of what Peter said. So first of all, let's look at these, this comment, this statement. What is it? Thou art the Christ, one comment, one statement, the son of the living God, another statement. There are two statements there. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, the son who belongs to and is in association with the living God. Two statements. So let's look at the first. You are the Christ. By appearing with Moses and Elijah, Jesus was being revealed to be the prophet of Deuteronomy eight fifteen. Remember, that's the prophet who will come after Moses, and Moses says, "Listen to him. This is the prophet." And the understanding there is that Moses is a prophet who is being used to give the law and through the giving of the law to constitute Israel as God's nation, having delivered them out of the house of bondage. And then Elijah is seen as the prophet, probably more than any of the others, although the others did this, but more than the others, as the enforcer. Of the law. The enforcer of the law. And when Moses. Is giving the great. Last sermon in Deuteronomy. The second giving of the law. And the explanations and so on. He gets to chapter 18. He gets to chapter 18. Eighteen fifteen has him saying. There is a prophet who is coming. Listen to him. And so when Moses. Effectively says. I'm but a shadow. I am a shadow. But that. One, the one who is coming, who will be the fulfillment of everything that God has used me to do. I am the shadow. He is a fulfillment. And so, by being together with Moses and Elijah, Jesus is being revealed to be that prophet, that lawgiver, and that law enforcer whom they foreshadowed. What do I mean by law enforcer? You don't obey when I say law enforcer and you remember Elijah Mount Carmel the prophets of Baal and the fire coming down and the prophets couldn't do anything and so Elijah said look put the sacrifice there pour all kind of water on it how much water do you remember how much and so they poured a little water on it they drowned the thing I think it was 12, whatever's full, but I may be wrong about that. And then the fire came down from heaven and consumed it. And then, of course, Elijah gave the command to kill all the prophets of Baal, you remember? Hundreds of them. Well, what does a law enforcement mean? It means, I think, principally... That Jesus enforces the law by keeping it perfectly. He is the one who enforces, substantiates, causes it to be the way of God and the activity of God's authority in us by keeping the whole law perfectly. And as a result of that, now he applies that work of having kept the law perfectly to the account of his own people. And so those whom he saves, God applies. Those whom God saves, he applies. Those whom God saves, he applies the perfection of the work of keeping the law that his own son accomplished to our credit. That means I will never break the law again, will I? Well, no, sin still dwells in these physical mortal bodies. But that does mean this, that every time I break the law, I am in Christ, God already having forgiven me of that law-breaking activity because he knew ahead of time i would do that so before you were saved god knew how much of a rascal you and i would be but he still put us in his son and applied the perfection of the obedience of jesus to our account having having forgiven us all trespasses amen for the blood of God's Son, Jesus, God's Son, forgives us of all sin. What is Where is that? 1 John. Remember it? 1-7. Some of you were getting it, I think. And so, Jesus is the enforcer. And then secondly, to those whom he does not save, then he enforces His right as a man who is the only man who has earned God's favor. Jesus is the only man who has, through his own personal nature, character, and work, earned God's favor. He earned it. Adam was supposed to. He did not. Jesus came and he did what Adam was to be. Therefore, God gave to Jesus the inheritance of the nations, don't you see? In Psalm uh, 2, verses 7 to 8. He earned it. We can't earn it. But he earned it on our behalf and for us, correct? And now those who are not in Christ, now Jesus has the authority to apply the penalty of breaking the law so when i say law enforcer that's mostly what i'm talking about and so we have that i think activity right there so thou of the christ jesus is the messiah the one who comes to fulfill the delivering purposes and redemptive purpose of god for his people Moses and Elijah show that. I know that some think, and, and it's okay, that Elijah, because he never died, he's going to be the one in Revelation. And I don't know. But the significance of Elijah is not that. The significance of Elijah is what it says about the very person of Jesus in relation to the law. That's the significance of Elijah. And also, remember, Elijah was John the Baptist, fulfilled in John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way. Now, the son of the living God... In transforming Jesus' physical appearance, God demonstrated and proclaimed the inner divine nature of his Son, which hitherto had been cloaked in his humanity. So, demonstration. Let's talk about two things a demonstration and a proclamation. First of all, how does God demonstrate Jesus' inner divine nature? Well, what does the word say in Matthew 17? Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. You see, again, once again, this is reminiscent of Exodus 34:29 and 30. When Moses came down from the mountain on Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony, the law in his hand. As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. When Jesus, the Son of God, took to himself, when, when, when the Son of God took to himself the humanity, the soul, in the person of Jesus... His essential divine nature was shrouded from public view, only to be revealed through his words and deeds, which I said before. So we knew something was unique about Jesus, but maybe we weren't sure. Or maybe we were more sure, but we were afraid to say something because of what others would think we're crazy. What do you mean he's divine? Are you goofy? Divine? (laughs) Only God is divine. So you see, we have these dynamics. But God makes a statement through Peter, who his son is, as they head toward the cross. Remember, the final work of our redemption. And to demonstrate this and to reveal it, we have the Mount of Transfiguration. And so, again, the way Moses' face, skin, his skin was shining. You notice, the, you notice the specificity of the word? It doesn't say his face shone, does it? Does it say his face shone? If I were writing it, what would I have said? If you were to write it, what would you have said? His face shone. Right? Andres, wouldn't you say, you know, his face shone. Look at the specificity of God. The skin on his face shone. Why such specificity? It shows that the in person was not being revealed. But a person external to Moses was being reflected in the face of Moses, where in Jesus' case, his face shone. It doesn't say the skin of his face. His face shone. That means that his whole face was the container of inner light. And through this face, inner light came forth to show that his inner nature is one of light. You remember Jesus says in John 8, 12, what? I am the light of the world. I just want to, again, look at the specificity of the word. How could anyone writing this word thousands of years ago know he had to say the skin of his face because one day somebody else is going to say his face shone. How can anyone know these things? How can they? They can't, can they, Harold? Who alone knows? Only the author of the book. And it's not a man. He's a king of glory. Such specificity. So his light shone. Let me get back to my notes to see what I'm saying next. This wears me out walking all this distance. Remember Philippians 2, 7, and 8. Jesus took upon himself the form, Morphe, the form, Morphe, that same transfigure, that metamorphosis, the Morphe of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Secondly, why does light? Again, Jesus' own words, I am the light of the world. 1 John 1.5, God is light. So out from the very person of Jesus comes the revelation of the very nature of Yahweh himself. Yahweh. And so what is the first command in the Bible? What is the first command in the Bible? Genesis 1-3. Let there be light. And God immediately, on the first thing he does, he brings forth a visible revelation of his inner character. Light. Light. There's a lot more to say about that in John's Gospel, but we don't have the time. As Moses experienced the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai, so also the disciples experienced the glory of the Lord in Jesus' appearance on the mountain. I need to move on. Oh, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Just as the cloud covered the tent of meeting. remember the tent of meeting in the Old Testament? The tent is finished, the tabernacle and what happens in chapter 40 the tabernacle is completed it's finished and the cloud of glory descended on that tabernacle so much so that no one not even Moses could enter you remember in second chronicles chapter 7 after what's the king's name solomon has prayed that the Lord would remember this temple and would honor the people and, and et cetera. And, and after he finishes praying, what happens? The cloud of glory fills the temple. Solomon, this, this exalted king who sits on the throne of God over Israel, not just the throne of Israel, but of God over Israel, prays, this exalted king prays, and the temple which is completed now is filled with the glory of God. And so we see something of that glory on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 17. We see a glimpse of two things. We see a glimpse of the personal glory of the Son of God. But we also see a glimpse, because Peter, John, and James are there with him, of the extension or the culmination of that glory when, on the day of Pentecost... When as they were gathered together, what happened? The Holy Spirit descended upon them and filled the place with the glory of God. And they began to manifest that filling through the gift of tongues. And remember, Peter comes out and begins to preach. And then finally, the glory of God now, not only in his son, but in his son as a man in order to have his glory in his people who are in his son. When Jesus returns, he doesn't return in the clouds. The Bible says, He watch your prepositions. He returns with the clouds. We coming back with him. We're coming back with him. White robes, dazzling, dazzling. And it's looked like to the unbelievers, look at those clouds. They're moving. And it's clouds, but wow, they're little different clouds. What in the world? We're coming back with him. So what Jesus, God is showing us in the Mount of Transfiguration, he's not only showing us about his son as a man, but he's showing us about his church, who are the result of the redemption of this man through the shedding of his blood. This cloud of glory. This glory of God. The proclamation. In case you didn't get it, God says, let me tell you what's happening. <laughs> How many of you need that? How many of us need that? And in case we don't get it, sometimes I'll, Jean and I will be doing the same things, whatever, and I'll totally miss it. Is that right, ever? Have I ever totally missed anything? And she'll say to me, what? And you'll say to me, what? Here's what I was saying or what was meaning or what we should, whatever. She sometimes has to explain to me. Any of you husbands have to have things explained to you? I'm the only one here. Okay, great. I don't mind being alone on that one. (laughs) This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. To ensure that they understood what or whom they had seen. The father for the second time. The second time. When's the first time he spoke from heaven? Matthew chapter Three or Luke chapter three, for the second time he affirms that Jesus is his unique beloved Son, Agapatos. in other words, the Son of his love. He's called the only begotten of the Father, and his uh, monogamous means unique, one of a kind. The word son here has nothing to do with physical generation. It has everything to do with unique, intimate relationship and fellowship. So whenever the word son as son of God is stated and is, uh, you know, there in the Bible, in the New Testament, it means unique, Personal, intimate, fellowship, relationship. The word son is the title that is given to the son of God in his role as son to the father. One who has come to do the will of the Father, even though he is equal in authority with the Father, he uses his authority in himself as the eternal divine son to submit to the authority of his Father, who also in himself is fully God and has eternal divine authority to lead. (sighs) That's what you get in Philippians chapter 2 five through eleven and so this is not a physical thing it's a relational thing why on the mountain why it's too big to go into but where was eden the garden of eden remember genesis chapter one and two where was it it was in an elevated area how do we know because the word doesn't say it was on a mountain how do you know chris because the water from the river flowed down it was an elevated thing it's a picture you see of the elevated place where god and his people will live forever the mount of transfiguration mount zion and the great city that will come down and settle mount zion on the earth it is that picture that god uses to show us of his place And as Adam was in the garden on Mount Eden, if you would, so Jesus is being proclaimed as the second Adam on Mount Sinai who will bring his people back to the mountain of God's presence. The appearance of the glory of God in Jesus' body. Reminds me of this, reminds us of this. Philippians 3.21, God will transform, will metamorphosize, if you would, our lowly bodies so that they will be like Jesus' glorious body. Other than the scars, to some extent, we're going to look like Jesus. I don't mean we're going to have the same hairstyle, and but we're going to look like We will be glorified beings in the new heaven and the new earth. We will be glorified beings. And I'm not going to read the last part, but you remember Peter said, hey, look, we need to do this, this, another. And the father says, wait, all I want to do is about the 6 through 13 is to say this. Very easy. Peter's reaction is to do something. We need to go do something. We need to do something. Let's build booths for each of you. But man, you see, cannot build a place for God. God builds a place for man. Amen. Next week, we'll take the rest of the chapter, hopefully.